Hello and welcome to everyone uh, attending us tonight. My name is Vladislav Paraponov. I'm a global community lead with Rubrica, Ukraine's media outlet that is focusing on, on solution journalism approach. So on behalf of Rubrica, let me say it's a great pleasure to welcome you tonight. And today's discussion is special in, in several ways. But the first one is that we are continuing to, to deepen our community. And tonight we'll have really exceptional speakers that are professional and uh, we are really glad that they are with us today. Today, Rubrica launched also an English language Instagram page. So all of you are welcome to subscribe. And special feature of uh, today's event is that we concluded the first season of our podcast and more than 20,000 times it, it was listened by our subscribers, but it was our just first season. And the next season basically starts exactly today. We are reshaping our format of events and we will make uh, several of them in the next month ahead. And we are really encouraging you to stay with us and to participate. We are already preparing the next couple of events. Obviously, we cannot miss today's day as uh, we commemorate the start of the Revolution of Dignity that started exactly 10 years ago. We always say that this uh, revolution, uh, it really gave space to the rise of new generation uh, that didn't uh, want to live in the, in the Russian sphere of influence, in the, um, in the corrupt country, and uh, that is encouraging pro-democracy -democ movement uh, and, and stuff like that. So today we dedicate our event uh, to all those who sacrificed their lives and also paved the way to free Ukraine. We really didn't know about today's news uh, basically when we planned the event, but today presumably two uh, MPs have been caught on bribes. So our topic is really evident um, like in terms of its relevance. So today we have three wonderful professional speakers uh, who have worked for years in the civil society sector. They are Martina Bohuslavic, who is executive uh, director of the Institute of Legislative Ideas. We also have Petro Borkovsky, who is executive director of Ilka Kucherev Democratic Initiatives Foundation. And we also have Viktor Nistura, who is head of Dream Project Office and uh, who is, is also representing Open, open Contracting Partnership. So all of you have your uh, your specializations, but of course you're welcome to reflect on your colleagues' remarks. So let me turn to Petro Borkovsky first, because we understand that corruption is, is also about perception. And we have been uh, kind of hearing for years from other countries, from our partners, um, basically, that we call them nowadays, that given... Ukrainian population uh, acknowledged that uh, the corruption is, is still present in Ukraine. It is interesting to know basically what do sociology polls and the internal mood of the society actually tells us about uh, the attitude toward corruption amid the full-scale war. Good, uh, Vladislav. Uh, thank you for invitation. I'm really honored to, to speak uh, in such a distinguished uh, among such a distinguished uh, speakers. And uh, I think that you're right saying that uh, uh, on this day, it's especially important uh, to pay attention uh, to, to social issues like corruption, to political issues like corruption, uh, 
in order to remember and understand the price uh, which is paid right now by our country, by our people in the struggle against Russia, and that uh, corruption is the issue uh, which uh, can define our future. So in a way, to start uh, the discussion, uh, I would like to be uh, correct and clear about the definition of the term. Since we are speaking um, English, not Ukrainian or Portuguese, uh, I refer to uh, Britannica Encyclopedia uh, to define this term. And Britannica gives uh, basically two uh, definitions uh, which are relevant to our current discussion. Is that first of all, the first definition of uh, corruption is that it is a dishonest or illegal behavior, especially by powerful people such as government officials or police officers. And the uh, second meaning, which is also relevant uh, to our discussion, is that corruption is, an, is the act of corrupting someone or something. So uh, basically, it means that when we speak about corruption, we think about uh, behavior of uh, uh, a person. Uh, and uh, first of all, a powerful person, the person who uh, has that power, and, uh, and for the action when uh, somebody is pushed Yes, to uh, to be engaged in the corruption. That is important. So, and now I must tell you that uh, although uh, the Ukrainians, most of the Ukrainians, uh, I think so, uh, they uh, never have read uh, Britannic Encyclopedia, but uh, they still share this uh, universal understanding of what the corruption is. And I'm saying, uh, in saying so, I refer to uh, the study. Uh, both qualitative and quantitative, which uh, the Democratic Initiatives Foundations conducted before the war. So it's very important. It was in 2018. It's very important when we will uh, shortly will, uh, speak about uh, this issue uh, after February 24, 2022. We need to understand the, the context, the social and historical context uh, in the most recent years. So according to the, the, our, and we, uh, during this uh, study in 2018, we directly asked uh, what people perceive, what they think, uh, what is corruption, what the corruption is. And so for the most citizens, uh, which we uh, uh, asked during the focus group, the focus groups, uh, so they perceived corruption as illegal actions of civil servant and government officials, right? So this is uh, just the same. So and they uh, described this phenomenon uh, uh, spontaneously. So they were not pushed uh, or they were not given uh, some options to choose. That's what people say straightly from their heart. And uh, that's as you see, that's completely uh, overlaps uh, or, or uh, completely uh, repeats what uh, the encyclopedia or the scientific. Uh, uh, literature gives us this definition. This is very important. Uh, that means that uh, that just underlines that uh, this issue is universal. That very often corruption uh, is associated with the power, and uh, uh, and uh, there is another meaning of corruption that was described by the people during the focus group. They said that corruption was referred to the same kind of illegal or dishonest uh, actions of doctors, teachers, uh, etc. And here I just want to say that uh, it's very important uh, in this occasion to define what is power. 
because in fact doctors and teachers also have got power over their clients although their corruption has individual impact on a certain moment of time while the corruption of politicians or civil servants uh, has vast social implications and lasts in time so that's very important to put to keep in, in mind these two aspects how ukrainians perceive but for the moment let's put aside this problem of power and focus on how ukrainians think about corruption so uh, again before the war in 2018 uh, according to the nationwide poll uh, we give the people to choose between three statements so first statement is that uh, bribes are immoral phenomenon unacceptable anywhere anytime so in 2018 49% of the respondents said and agreed with this statement that it's an immoral to give bribes and that uh, they are unacceptable next the bribes are negative phenomenon but in some cases they can be justified so that's uh, an adaptive attitude toward corruption and it, it was shared in 2018 by 35% all over the country. And finally, that bribes are a normal way to solve problems quickly and effectively. So this statement, uh, only 9% of Ukrainians in 2018 agreed with this statement. And uh, here is, we need to understand why it's happening. Uh, because uh, it, uh, I think it hasn't changed with the time. So the reason is, is that what was noticed uh, by us in 2018 and also by our colleagues sociologists is that uh, most uh, citizens believe that uh, corruption cannot be overcome by the government efforts because they did not have trust in the actions of authorities. So there is a very uh, interesting and a very straightforward uh, connection between how people perceive corruption and between uh, the trust of the people toward the state or social institutions. The lower is the trust, the higher is the sense among citizens that the corruption cannot be overcome and that they cannot rely on the state and on the relevant uh, law enforcement bodies that they will fight uh, with corruption. So again, if uh, in Ukraine before the war we have got a generally negative attitude uh, toward uh, all branches of government and uh, low trust in them, that would mean that people think that the same institutions were corrupt. Let me turn to Martina, because uh, because your organization is really active in terms of kind of monitoring the um, anti-corruption efforts and, and the results, uh, which is more important. So kind of your opinion and um, and analysis are also very important. What can you tell us about what does Ukrainian civil society in general do as a domestic and uh, international watchdog to help actually both monitor and uh, also combat the issue of corruption? Uh, yeah, Vladislav, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me today and big pleasure for me to be here today. I also would like to thank for pre our previous uh, speaker, distinguished one, uh, Petro, that uh, he uh, reminded us very big price that we are paying every single day for having this an awful price, for having this opportunity to do all this anti-corruption reforms and anti-corruption matters regarding future reconstruction process and everything. Well, um, 
just to uh, start, I would like to say that uh, we're working as anti-corruption analytical think tank. And before the 21st, 24th of February, we have been working as uh, anti-corruption expertise think tank. And uh, after the revolution of dignity, uh, after the 2014, we have been working on anti-corruption expertise of draft laws. And obviously, when the big full-scale regional happened, we understood that it's a big opportunity for us to uh, work on all of those procedures that are going to form the legislation, legislation framework, and all of the, I mean, all of the procedures regarding the allocation of money, or how they are spent, how they are allocated to local authorities, and everything. So, um, just to start uh, answering your question, I would like to start from that. It's very important to form the coalitions. It's very important to work in teams, and it's very important not to work on your own. So basically, by that, I mean, uh, I would like also to say a few words about the Rice Coalition of Ukraine, that uh, um, the idea of forming that happened uh, from Viktor Nestulia, with also Transparency International, Ukraine, Driborovic, and Tolisi Dorgan, and they just uh, created such a Rice Coalition just one year ago or something. So we just... Um, tried to within that coalition uh, we tried um, not to even control or monitoring of how you said to do the watchdog monitoring uh, for the government for the ministry responsible for restoration for the agency within that this rice coalition uh, it happened to us that we started to work like experts from civil society, like uh, totally pro bono lawyers for the Ministry for Restoration, for the agency, for local authorities, uh, trying to help them to create all this legislative framework of the reconstruction. So uh, that's a big opportunity to all of the NGOs working on the topic of uh, transparency of uh, the recovery is to join such coalitions and to form their own coalitions like the RISE coalition uh, happened one year ago. It's very important. The another thing, um, I think it's very important to mention the possibility uh, to become the official partners of the uh, public authorities that are responsible for reconstruction and to become the members of integrity councils or integrity working group for just they are working within their agency for restoration and i'm the member of such integrity council and the working group responsible for the anti-corruption expertise anti-corruption legislative uh, work within the ministry for restoration and uh, that is working on anti-corruption program uh, so we also became our i mean ally also have uh, has become the member of such working group so it's not only always about the watchdogging and uh, mm, it's not always about the critics uh, but just try to do um non-publicly non-publicly work uh, firstly and then start to criticize the public authorities that started all this huge uh, thing regarding the reconstruction process. Well, uh, I think uh, we should also mention very important case that happened uh, just uh, today. So, um, and I'll sh sh I will try to shortly explain why it's very important to become not only a watchdog mon monitor and also a partner. So, um, I think everybody here uh, know that 
what hap what has happened today. So uh, it's a case of an unsuccessful attempt to influence the money of the fund for the liquidation of the consequences of fund aggression. And uh, uh, what has happened, the SOPO and NABU served a notice of suspicion to the member of parliament and his from the party uh, in english it called i mean says servant of the people party it's obviously sluhan rodu party presidential one andri odarchenko and this mp tried to bribe the head of the agency frustration mustafa Nayem, and the head of the uh, and the, uh, the vice minister for restoration alexander kubrakov so this is an attempt uh, by the mp to influence uh, the allocation of funds from this uh, liquidation fund for to repair his own state biotechnology university and uh, talking uh, his own i mean he was a rector previous rector of this university he used to be a rector and which he how he influenced like the mp so uh, the amount of the bribe was um, near nearby something uh, 50000 of dollars and the first tranche after the decision of the interagency group uh, in between it was like 10000 of dollars was transferred by the SMP to the top official on the uh, his electronic wallet so and the amount of money allocated from the liquidation fund for the university's repairs is uh, nearby uh, 116 million hryvnias. So um, obviously we understand that uh, uh, everything failed and uh, Mustafa and uh, Alexander Kubakov uh, has, uh, well, they did a big statement on that and uh, after that, I mean, during all of those process today, the support Nabu served a notice of suspicion to this MP. But I would like to figure out the um, reasons, I would say, why did it, why the same didn't work. So, frankly speaking, I think it's uh, all about the political will, about the political will of the head of the agency, obviously about the head of the uh, agency, Mustafa Nayem. So, um, the integrity and just a personal factor how to call that rightly i call that a personal factor of the head of the agency mustafa Nayem. Uh, he, he uh, who when attempting to be bribed he began the preparation with the anti-corruption agencies nabo and sapo and uh, it if it is he who is just the thing i would like to explain so it is he who is in, uh, implementing anti-corruption measures in the agency and frankly speaking, I think uh, all of the things that have happened today is only because of his political will to do that. So he is not under uh, legislative, uh, uh, obviously, he worked like a, a, a whistleblower, but um, that's why we have uh, his political will to do that. Uh, that's why all of that happened. So. Um, the another thing is very important that uh, talking about this fund uh, working within the rice coalition on the legal framework of the reconstruction we have been working a full year 
uh, to do the procedures from this font more transparent and accountable. So we managed to do the methodology of prioritization. The team of the Transparency International of Ukraine did that. And we managed to broadcast all of their meetings. We managed to um, just to open the possibility for local authorities to submit their own application for reconstructions with that font. And obviously, just also regarding to the political will of the Deputy Minister for Restoration, Oksandra Zarkina, we managed to uh, write all of those procedures more transparent and more accountable. So that's why uh, this MP, he asked to allocate uh, the money from this transparent fund. And plus the political will of Mustafa Nayem, all of that uh, played the game. And that's why all of that, I mean, the whistleblowing process happened. So um, that's why uh, it's very important for us as a civil society to do um, the integrity checks of the people that are going to be the next leaders, the next, I mean, the management uh, of the agency, of the all of the authorities that will be created somehow, all that will be responsible for reconstruction because we understand, and talking about the today's case, we understand that the political will and the integrity of the people that are on their uh, higher level, top level positions that are responsible for reconstruction is the criteria number one to do the uh, um, all of these uh, uh, investigations and it's much easier for obviously for the anti-corruption bodies like National Anti-Corruption Bureau and Specialized uh, uh, um, Anti-Corruption Prosecutor Office to work with those people. So um, the last but not the least forms of the civil society that could do something uh, f uh, to make all this happen is not only a, le a legal expertise legal framework uh, drafting that we what we have did with the procedures of the fund for the liquidation of consequences of Russian aggression. It's not only about the becoming the official members of integrity council that work within the agency and do the integrity checks of the people that are going to be um, uh, hired on these positions just uh, um, to be the management. What The last thing that we did, we did the integrity checks uh, within this uh, integrity council, within the agency, we did the integrity checks of the people that uh, are going to go through the competitions and to uh, become, the, and are going to become the uh, management of this uh, regional offices responsible for restoration. So the last but not the least is the thing to um, to show the priorities for the reconstruction and to do the official priorities and to do the um, pro procedures and to the whole process of the construction more transparent and obviously digitalized. So we have Victor Nestulia here today with us and I'm pretty sure he will uh, definitely will go through details of the digitalization of the future reconstruction process. But I mean, today's case shows all that we definitely need more information to be closed out and just everybody and just to work 
everything should work within the principle, everybody sees everything. So the digitalization process is about that. And obviously we could not do as a watchdog monitoring all of the procurements with, uh, in every single project that is going to be the part of the big reconstruction process. So uh, yeah, but it's something within this fund for the liquidation, the consequences of Russian aggression, but come on, I mean, there was like hundreds of projects, hundreds of objects that need to be repaired, that need to be restored. So frankly speaking, I think that the digitalization process is the key. Uh, 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 obviously, I totally believe in anti-corruption monitoring and watchdogging and watchdogging the procurement and watchdogging all of the in doing the integrity checks for this management and everything and with the cooperation as uh, uh, for, from our side as civil society watchdogs with NABO and SAPA. But I mean, we will just face a big problem without the digitalization of all of the reconstruction system. So uh, I think I'll start here as just answering your first question thank you okay mm, thank you very much martina for for really comprehensive reply as well so my pleasure to turn to victor who is uh, head of the dream project can you tell our audience that is abroad in particular what is the dream system about in general and um, actually what issues does it uh, really help to simplify Thanks, Vladislav, for, for your question and opportunity to share uh, what we do. But I would like to start with a statement that Ukraine is not a corrupt country. Ukraine is a country that fights corruption. And fights uh, corruption, I would say, very well, maybe slowly but steadily. And over the last 10 years, we made a huge progress comparing to what we have uh, in 2013, before the revolution of dignity, and what we have now with um, comprehensive integrity infrastructure, including National Anti-Corruption Bureau, uh, National Agency on Corruption Prevention, Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, Anti-Corruption Court, uh, and lots of other additional institutions that are doing their work. And uh, from even today's news, we see that uh, they're doing their work uh, pretty well. And by the way, I want to, you know, not of course to diminish today's uh, news from uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, but we also had a case with uh, uh, Dmitro Sinichenko, right, a couple of years ago when like there was a huge celebration of corruption prevention and then uh, we saw another case of National Anti-Corruption Bureau investigating uh, him. So, of course, not to want to make any parallels, but it's great that institutions are working. And over uh, last years, we see a regular progress on how situation with anti-corruption is improving. It is improving because of many reasons. And of course, I believe that one of the core uh, pillar of, um, of, of this change is Ukrainian civil society and the new way of how Ukrainian civil society uh works and cooperates with ukrainian government but also international partners this was also introduced i believe by revolution of dignity and uh, i was lucky to to participate in several uh reforms including prozoro prozoro sale uh, e-health and so on that had some some role in in anti-corruption and these reforms evolved from maidan 
So basically, it it started as volunteer initiatives, later supported by government, becoming a huge uh, transformation. So Prozoro now, uh, public procurement system, uh, the most transparent public procurement system in the world. And I'm working in, in public procurement sphere in more than 50 government countries, and I can uh, admit that there is no more transparent public procurement system in the world uh, than Ukraine, starting from procurement planning to contract implementation, uh, you know, try to find any other countries that will publish structured data and information about all bidders, bids, documents submitted by those bidders, actual contract that is signed, all amendments to that contract, actual payments made with it, every contract uh, in, in real time. You know, let's uh, remember our COVID contracts where every Ukrainian knew about every hryvnia spent uh, for COVID expenditures within 24 hours. And check, uh, for example, UK COVID contracts where they even now investigate, you know, fast lanes with you know, delay with publication of information for more than uh, 200 days. Um, but of course, uh, some of the situation, some of the reforms we introduced increased significantly increased transparency. They increased opportunities to investigate. They increased opportunities for civil society, for media to do their uh, work well. And we we see recent scandals that change situation in the Ministry of Defense, for example, with Nashi Groshi and uh, etc. Uh, but transparency is the first foundation for future accountability and integrity. Transparency, of course, itself doesn't solve situation with uh, with corruption, uh, but it's an integral part of anti-corruption fight. Ukraine, after the revolution of dignity, is becoming more and more transparent in every field. Of course, situation like the full-scale invasion uh, temporarily changed the situation, and we had a small, let's say, gap or a relatively short gap uh, with reduction of certain information. Uh, but we see that we are coming back to complete transparency in, in many fields, including public procurement, including assets declaration, including beneficiary owners, uh, and so on and so forth. Again, thanks to Ukrainian civil society and international partners, of course, but also to many governmental partners who listen to us and hear us. Uh, but slowly coming to dream. Sorry for taking more time. <laughs> before uh, opening it, because it's very important to understand that after the revolution of government, uh, Ukraine started a new way of collaboration. It was uh, what Martina mentioned, uh, when civil society established a culture of, let's say, co-governance, where civil society was identifying the problem and was uh, ready to work hand in hand with government to, to solve that problem. That's how Prozoro appeared, Prozoro sale, national anti-corruption in infrastructure and so on and that's how we approached um, dream so basically dream a digital restoration ecosystem for accountable management uh, was initiated jointly by the ministry for restoration and uh, civil society coalition rise ukraine that uh, sit together with the government of ukraine analyzing the huge challenge uh, that ukraine is facing basically right now more than 200,000 objects that are completely damaged or, or destroyed. And understanding that the need for the restoration is, as of February 2023, was more than $411 billion, according to Rapid Damages and Needs Assessment Report by World Bank. Uh, there is no way how 
like any country, even the most developed country with highest standards of integrity, there is no way how anyone could properly plan and implement uh, such a huge uh, project without, you know, any any uh, challenges. So that's how Ukrainian government and Ukrainian civil society came up with the concept of end-to-end -end digital transformation of the recovery process, how we can ensure complete transparency and smart decision making that is data driven and completely accountable to the whole world starting from damages assessment to project commissioning going through all steps of uh, basically recovery project implementation you know through uh, planning and prioritization preparation of those projects uh, filling so-called bank of project or pipeline prioritizing that pipeline and understanding who can pay for what, which funding sources, including municipal budget, state budget, but also international partners, working with procurement planning and procurement conduction, understanding who are those counterparts and their beneficiary owners behind companies who earn money, tracking actual delivery of construction progress, seeing what's happening on the construction side, and finally uh, commissioning those objects so we can guarantee that everything that we wanted to achieve from the very beginning is actually delivered so that's that's um, uh, was designed you know as a as an end-to-end -end digital cycle and luckily ukraine as a champion in digitalization having lots of great digital tools uh, including registry for damaged and destroyed property a uh, single electronic system in construction that is used to develop design documentation, you know, provide permission to start construction and so on. Prozoro for public procurement, beneficiary owners registry, treasury transaction system. So basically we can now see even during the war, all treasury transactions in real time starting from one cent. Uh, it's like radical transparency it, it, even during the martial law time. So um, Dream as a ecosystem integrates uh, all those various digital solutions and streamlines the process so eventually we can see all the pieces of the whole cycle uh, under one umbrella and for either ukrainian citizen or international taxpayer who contributes to ukrainian reconstruction from their taxes uh, they, they don't have to um, you know think how their money are spent they can simply enter dream uh, project profile and see how this project was planned, how it was designed, how it was appraised, uh, how it meets, for example, sustainability requirements, how it was procured, and what's happening on the construction uh, site. So eventually, this will help us to, to, to establish a single pipeline and guarantee that it's uh, properly prioritized, uh, that it has civil society opinion on it, that it's supported by community, uh, and it's properly implemented. And uh, just quickly covering some of the key components of DREAM, because it's important to understand that DREAM, on one hand, is developed by the central government to, to support the recovery uh, process and its transparency. But the key uh, user of DREAM is local community. So DREAM uh, provides every local community in Ukraine to register its investment profile to, you know, customize it like LinkedIn page, you know, sharing information, who is your contact person responsible for investment and recovery projects in your local community, providing some additional characteristics like population, number of IDPs, budget, incomes, expenditures, credit savings, and so on, but also presenting your investment project pipeline. So which recovery project your community needs to, to develop to uh, tackle all the challenges that appeared because of the war 
And this pipeline is created uh, based on international financial institutions guidelines on project preparation. So basically in DREAM together with the government, we are embedding global best practices into the flow of preparing the project and presenting the project. So we can be sure that everything that comes in, in the end of this process is understandable for international partners and they can take this data and uh, use it for their appraisal and so on. Of course, everything that is happening inside of, of the system, you know, follows everyone sees everything principle. Like Prozoro, uh, we can see every bit of information and documents um, that is used for project initiation, project development, project approval, and then every other step of, of construction. Of course, we understand that transparency, as I mentioned before, doesn't solve all the issues, but it significantly decreases the risk and increases opportunity for civil society, investigative media, investigative authorities to perform their function um, better. And with uh, information about project pipeline and Ukrainian needs, we are also working on structuring information about international assistance. We want to better coordinate all the flows that are channeling to Ukrainian recovery and uh, basically help communities to use DREAM as a single window of information for the opportunities to raise money for their projects. Because right now, uh, how every local community in Ukraine uh, found out about um, potential funding source for, for their uh, projects, you know, either through social media or through some conference where they were lucky to hear about new opportunity or through some uh, news. Uh, we are slowly together with the ministry structuring this information in DREAM and eventually once community submits a project, for example, about education in Sumy region, system automatically suggests that, hello, there are three funding sources that potentially could support your project. So these are terms and conditions, eligibility and qualification criteria, and ways to apply for funding for this donor. So we are simplifying the way on how communities can know about potential funding. And of course, by meeting Ukrainian demand with international supply, uh, we are providing a powerful tool for international community, for multi-agency donor coordination platform uh, to, 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 to better understand what is the need and how it is covered, where is the gap, and how we can uh, support the recovery better, but also be sure that every penny, pound, grivnia, uh, euro, etc., uh, contributed to Ukraine is properly uh, allocated and is uh, used accountably. What I mentioned before, you know, Dream introduced accountability for any taxpayer in, in the world. You can open, right now we, we provide this for, for example, Lithuania and Estonia. You, you can open Dream web portal and see two projects uh, funded by Lithuania. You can track how those projects were implemented, all approvals, decisions, budgets, uh, what was happening on the construction site and eventual outcome of, of their uh, work. Of course, throughout the whole process, we collect lots of structured data and we provide this data in a way of, um, of course, first of all, open data itself, raw data for civic tech, uh, etc., but also in, in a way of uh, user-friendly dashboards. So with a few clicks, you can identify uh, projects that are available in, in your community um, and, and so on. Uh, and lastly, for us, it's very important to make sure that 
uh, Ukrainian recovery is uh, people-centered, that citizens can contribute to planning, can contribute to prioritization, can contribute to project selection, and also monitoring of what's happening. We are introducing e-democracy tools at every step, uh, either through integration with DIA or through developing uh, additional functionality together with Central for Innovation Development. We are finalizing the methodology and will start development early in 2024. But for us, it's important that DREAM could be used as a tool uh, to include citizens, especially those who are temporally displaced. And for example, sitting abroad uh, that might be interested in, in how their community is developing, what are their needs, how they can help community to raise funds for the recovery uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And of course, um, you know, for those who listen to the podcast, it, it's hard to uh, check, but you can go to the portal itself, dream.gov.ua, and there is an analytics section on on that portal and um, on bi.dreamgov.ua, you can already check all those dashboards with couple with a few clicks. You know you can quickly identify, for example, projects that were uh, supported from the Fund for Liquidation for Russian Aggression Consequences, right? And you can see the list. You can see what is the state of of uh, that project, what's happening now on the construction side, and so on. Of course, it it's not yet fully implemented. We are still on an experimental uh, mode. Uh, we are now working on the law to make sure that every community is obliged to use Dream. Because uh, similarly to Prozoro, I remember when we started Prozoro back in 2015, uh, there were some great uh, volunteers, for example, I don't know, Ministry of Defense back then. You know, they were using Prozoro um, and there were different stages of Ministry of Defense. Now we see that Ministry of Defense is again coming to transparent procurement. But there were great volunteers who were using Prozoro proactively for any kind of procurement, even before the law obliged them. And similarly now, we see that there are some communities who are using Dream and report everything. For example, Trostanet, they're doing it well. Um, and we have more and more communities who proactively use use Dream to show that they are transparent, that they don't uh, afraid anything, and they are ready to be open for the whole world. But there are also someone uh, who, first of all, is not uh, willing to use Dream at this stage, or is is using it just formally, just registering in the system and submitting basic information like name of the project and 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 that's it. And of course, for such uh, situation, we need a law that will oblige them uh, to use the dream and to report everything uh, at every step. But luckily, we have full political support from the government of Ukraine. We have full support from uh, at least three parliamentary committees. We work closely with uh, head of anti-corruption committee, head of budget committee, and head of committee for regional development. So we no, don't have any doubt that the law will be adopted and in 2024 we'll be able to use DREAM similarly like we use Prozoro now to track every recovery project at every step of its development. Sorry for taking a little bit longer and happy to, to answer any questions. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's really important for our audience to understand. So uh, let me turn for couple of minutes i hope so uh, to to petron uh, because um, you mentioned the poll that your organization has um, has conducted and uh, it also has caused 
basically quite a discussion in Ukraine. You yourself gave uh, like a lot of interviews um, about it, and um, I would like to to invite you to just kind of kind of briefly summarize it um, and. Uh, um, and explain uh, that uh, the question in the poll was that uh, the, uh, the president is uh, responsible for uh, for corruption and uh, uh, basically you've touched upon uh, this but actually can you explain to our audience uh, why it is the case and uh, basically what does it mean for um, for Ukrainian future in uh, in in months ahead, uh, while the talks about possible elections, uh, both uh, to the parliament and for the president, uh, are held, and um, is it okay during the war? Is it normal, or or it should be changed? Uh, and uh, this perception is uh, a bit uh, not so relevant uh, basically what do you see thank you thank you for the question uh that was uh what that was the much ado about nothing when the uh governmental officials reacted in a very i would say unintelligent unintelligent manner uh, to the figures because i think they did not like the reflection in the mirror the reflection of their actions in the mirror and here i would like to disagree strongly with mr victor nestura who said that there are huge successes in fighting corruption mr nestura if we have this huge successes there will be no there will be not 34 percent of the people who consider that uh corruption is a bigger threat than the new russian offensive there will be just a three percent possibly so that would show that that was uh, a success. Uh, however, if we speak about the uh, attitudes of the people, look, uh, these are not new ones. In 2015, uh, there was an open question which asked, so whom do you consider responsible for the uh, fighting corruption in Ukraine? And 62% uh, of respondents, I remind you, that was the beginning, that was the March 2015, and they said that uh, the president. So in uh, August 2018, like three years later, we repeated the same question and uh, guess what was the figure? It was 63. So the point is here that uh, well, since the beginning of independence, since 1991, which I remember very well, president in Ukraine is a top figure. Uh, it's not a part of the executive, neither part of the uh, legislative branch of the power, but it has uh, the powers to influence decision-making in the country. Uh, he can uh, block laws, he can uh, initiate laws, right? And uh, in 2019, uh, president was the one who uh, not only uh, won the elections in a landslide, with the 73% of the people who voted for him, but also he was able to put in the parliament uh, his party as uh, a, a total majority. So, and this party was formed by him personally. So, uh, since uh, August 2019, we have a unique situation, uh, 
in Ukraine when uh, both uh, branches of the power, apart from the president, they are formed and they are ruled from the one center of power. And this is uh, the president and his office. So therefore, uh, anything that happens in the country in the sphere of legislation or in the sphere of executive power is directly connected and linked to what the president's policies are. And moreover, if we remember the election campaign of 2019, the current president came to power uh, under the promises to broke the backbone of corruption in the country. And uh, if we look back, so he is in power, uh, let's say, completely since August 2019, when the uh, majority was formed, the pro-presidential majority was formed in the parliament. So since August 2019, uh, that was the president who ruled the country. And uh, in December 2019, uh, the trust toward him was uh, more than 60%. In December 2021, uh, the balance of trust was him was minus 20%. So between August 2019 to December 2021, the current president completely failed if we speak about the policies. However, everything change, was changed after, everything has changed since February 2022. The president has become a symbol and for the good reason of the national resistance. However, what we showed by our poll, and uh, that was not the, the our uh, will, that was the uh, will of the people who participated in the poll, that was a reflection of public opinion, that people are urgently expect and demand from the president to take a strong measures against corruption in this country. So there is a still a hope, there is a still expectation, but for the successes to come, it's a long way. Uh, okay, thank you, Petro, and uh, obviously I will give uh, the floor to Victor and uh, then to Martina as well. Yeah, I just want to, to reflect on, on the comment that I believe myself that it's a fact that Ukraine is making a huge progress in, in anti-corruption fight because of all the institutional frameworks um, and changes in in uh, you know legislative uh, fields, uh, deregulation, digitalization, those reforms that significantly reduce the opportunity for corruption. Of course, it doesn't mean that we don't have corruption. It is there, uh, but also I don't want to uh, you know misuse the concept of perception and actual corruption, because when you have a complete transparency. When uh, you know you have freedom of speech, and when all investigative media, civil society are on a daily basis uh, using, for example, completely transparent procurement system Prozoro uh, to identify violation and misuse of of public funds, freely speaking about it and raising those cases to the the topest uh, media, etc. Of course, perception uh, would be uh, lowering. For example, according to the Corruption Perception Index, uh, Ukraine has 33 points and Belarus has 39 points. So Belarus is less corrupt than uh, Ukraine. Uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's not exactly true uh, because there is, uh, you know, dictatorship, right? It's uh, just a, a corrupt 
regime. But the fact that uh, you cannot really, you know, write about it, media cannot share the information about it, and so on, perception is 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 better. Um, but again, my point here is, I don't have any doubts that we are on the right track to fight corruption and that we are making. Uh, huge progress. Maybe this progress is slower than we would expect. Uh, that this is an evolution. You know, revolution in anti-corruption, unfortunately, is is not happening. And we have to evolutionarily build our institutions, change our culture, including business culture, and promote business integrity across small, medium enterprises and and uh, large sector, and so on. And of course, we need to 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 work with perception as well, because I believe that in in lots of surveys, when we ask people what is the biggest problem, they would say corruption. But uh, many of them, if you ask, did you witness corruption yourself? Uh, majority of them will say no, because there is like top level corruption. You know, everyone is speaking about parliamentarians, you know, government, etc. Uh, but you know, petty corruption is, is reducing uh, and, and so on. And yeah, I believe that Martina also wants to contribute. Yes, yes, Martina, please. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Well, I'm a lawyer, so that's why I always like to operate with facts. Um, I totally agree that uh, all of the things that uh, Petro has uh, uh, told us today is mostly about the perception. And uh, uh, well, I would like just to use the parallel and to do the com use the comparing method, like just let's compare the Ukraine uh, now and let's compare the Ukraine and 2014. So, uh, well, uh, today's Zoom, like everything that is happening just right in this minute, so we're just recording that podcast on November 21, and it's the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Maidan. And uh, I think no one uh, that is present here will argue that Ukraine 10 years ago and Ukraine now are totally different countries. So we managed to build our own anti-corruption infrastructure to uh, finally to do the National Anti-Corruption Agency uh, of Preventing Corruption, NACP, NABO, SAPO, highest anti-corruption court, court totally uh, independent from the presidential office through these open competitions with the international partners within this uh, competition commissions and everything. So it's obvious thing that we did a big change just comparing to what ha have been uh, happening just 10 years ago. That's the first thing and about the facts. What I really like is uh, when uh, a lot of foreigners or just uh, European or just West uh, top officials, uh, they asked us uh, um, as a civil society representatives how we evaluate, uh, how, I mean, what is our own assess of the corruption index, corruption perception in Ukraine, etc. So I always give them uh, these uh, official international ratings. So I what I really like, I, I think everybody here understand that they are totally independent. And what I really like that, for example, the Greco, it's a, a European, we know what Greco is, it's like a European uh, um, authority, I mean, the commission that is responsible for anti-corruption uh, anti -corruption work. And they removed us finally from the back list of the states that uh, 
did the efforts and they call it globally unsatisfactory. So they totally removed us from that blacklist and we implemented 15 out of 31 recommendations satisfactory and nine particularly implemented and seven didn't implement it at all. But I mean, we're already not in the blacklist that we have been just dozen of years before. That's the first thing. The another one in 2022, uh, Ukraine ranked, just listen to these numbers, we ranked 116 country out of 180 countries served in Transparency International Corruption Perception Index. And back in 2012, uh, Ukraine ranked 144th place. I mean, we managed to move like uh, uh, 20, 20 uh, through this 20 place uh, ranking uh, from the Transparency International through this Transparency Corruption Perception Index. Uh, also in 2022, Ukraine took the second place in the open data maturity ranking among the 35 countries of the world. That's because of the Prozoro, that's because of the DIA. So that's why we are always um, asking for this international support and asking for all those money and financial support and everything. That's why we are under like under the glass. So everybody sees what's happening in Ukraine. And I mean, it's obvious for everybody that uh, European countries, they, they still have their own corruption cases and corruption scandals and everything, but they are not on the, this, how to call that? I mean, the glass that is always under the control of international partners of civil society monitoring and everything. So uh, it's like, yeah, a short answer uh, before, uh, before we'll just end up with this whole a theme of uh, corruption perception and everything. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Martina. Um, I will have just uh, basically the last question to uh, to three of you, and uh, it will be the question from the audience. But uh, also, if you have something more to say, you are absolutely welcome. And um, uh, we used to uh to operate uh, this term of of corruption which we are we are talking about today and and we are also kind of used to operate the term of uh, basically kind of homework in terms of corruption and uh, the question that um i would like to um, i would like you to answer is uh, what actions are needed in Ukraine to eliminate corruption, starting from the very top. And uh, I would just like to, um, everyone answer uh, kind of this question really brief. But again, if you have something more to say, uh, you're welcome. And then we will uh, finish our today's uh, discussion, which is quite hot and we really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely, Victor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can start. I believe that we have, um, you know, pretty good achievements, as I said before, um, good integrity infrastructure, all those institutions. So first of all, we have to continue to strengthen those institutions and protect them, making sure that they're really independent. What we uh, saw, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday, right? Parliamentarians voted for additional uh, number of detectives for, for National Anti-Corruption Bureau. There were recent discussions about independence of specialized anti-corruption prosecutor's office so we just need to continue 
strengthening those institutions and uh, providing their independence. Second, we have um, state anti-corruption uh, strategy and roadmap. Right, there are lots of reforms that need to be implemented uh, to fight corruption. We just need to again slowly and steadily implement all those items mentioned in the strategy. It's a very well-developed strategy that will significantly reduce lots of corruption risks and opportunities for corruption if properly implemented. And luckily, we have great cooperation between national agencies and corruption prevention, civil society, government of Ukraine, uh, that helps to, to basically track its implementation and support with advocacy where it is needed. Third, uh, we need to continue our uh, work on deregulation and digitalization. So simplifying some opportunities uh, and areas for, for business and uh, removing some of the um, you know, contact points between Ukrainian citizens, Ukrainian businesses with, with government through digital solutions. Uh, so these are three steps that are needed for, from government and of course uh, we we need to keep the space for our vibrant civil society you know i believe that uh, there is no way how ukrainian civil society can uh, allow us to to step back from the course ukraine has taken you know the, the most important thing right now is to win the war and even during fighting the war we see that we continue our fight against corruption so integrity infrastructure, anti-corruption strategy and roadmap, uh, deregulation and digitalization, plus openness and cooperation between Ukrainian government and civil society promoting open government principles and practices. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Uh, Martina, Petro, you're also welcome. No minds if Petro. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Good. Uh, let me tell you that, in, as in any difficult policy problem, we have to deal with three fields. Uh, it's that prevention, which is the uh, the most complex one, a mitigation, like a middle way, and the punishment, which is the last, but even only with the consequences. So let's start from the punishment, which is uh, also a very problematic in Ukraine. So uh, recently we've heard the, uh, an idea to impl impl or implement or uh, introduce the uh, lifelong sentences for corruption, which is a bit stupid because it's not the severity of the punishment, but uh, inescapability out of uh, this. And they have a problem with that. if. Martina before spoke about the facts as a lawyer and the facts are on the ground that neither Igor Kolomoisky who stole 5.5 billion dollars from the Ukrainian uh, from his own uh, from the people who put money into his bank right neither Konstantin Zhivago uh, who is accused of a big scale corruption uh, he is escaped and right now in France uh, and uh, many other people uh, since 2014 and even since the full-scale invasion, they managed to escape from the punishment. So that shows that with the punishment, we have a trouble here in Ukraine. Mitigation, that's a mid-level. Uh, I agree 
that we have uh, on this level to mitigate. That means that uh, we can uh, threaten or introduce a high risk, yes, uh, of punishment for those who decided to engage in the corruption. And that is the function of the uh, anti-corruption bodies like National Agency on Corruption Prevention, like National Anti-Corruption Bureau, but who can investigate. And uh, that means that uh, we can only mitigate, uh, not to uh, completely uh, constrain or uh, deny uh, the access to global lynching to the possible perpetrators, but uh, only try to um, only to, to prevent something, uh, to, to mitigate uh, the, the damages done by the corruption. Uh, still, the, the most complex issue is, of course, the prevention. And it lies beyond uh, the field of uh, digitalization, or anti-corruption bodies for judicial reform, that uh, accounts uh, for three things. First of all, it's very simple, the tax system. The tax system is Ukraine is uh, heavy and uh, with complex administration. To simplify, to uh, change the tax system, to reduce taxes basically, means that the business would be more free uh, to work and uh, less government will be present in Ukraine. And uh, secondly, this is the most complex part, is the education. So if uh, in beginning from the family education and in the school, so if the pupils, if the students uh, see the opportunity to cheat, so, uh, well, this habit will last for the life. So they will try to cheat in everything. So if they see that cheaters get out with it, if they see that cheaters are becoming successful people, uh, in this, then the person person learns that cheating is not bad, that actually it can be rewarded in many in many aspects. And that's the roots of the corruption. So starting from the family, from the education, from the socialization of the person is the most complex way to prevent the corruption. For uh, developed countries like Sweden or Switzerland, it took uh, centuries and uh, hundreds of hang, hanged and executed people to educate people that cheating is not good, that actually it can be punished. So now we have uh, to wait uh, to go through this process just in the years, not in the centuries. We do not have this, uh, such a luxury to do it. And uh, finally, uh, I don't want to take uh, your time, but I would advise you to uh, read the uh, the late one of the latest books written by the Christopher Barry D. He's a criminologist, and it's talking with psychopaths and savages: the journey into the evil mind. It describes how people can do evil things and how to avoid it. And there are really good like prevention measures, including people who like sociopaths or psychopaths who use their position in the power uh, or in a business structures to rip off the society. So this is the, uh, the scientific also method to prevent from these people to enter the state of business institutions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Petro and Martina. Uh, yeah, uh, well, um, the guy, uh, the boys already told everything. I'll just add a three steps from me as a civil society representative. The only one thing I would like to add, uh, I'm totally agree with Petrov that prevention is really important. Well, that's the most important thing. And I totally agree with what already Victor has said that uh, the anti-corruption strategy is very slow, uh, but it's very important instrument that should be uh, well, it should be um, 
not only mon monitored, not only watchdogged, but also we should we as a civil society should help the uh, um, public authorities that are responsible for uh, for all for basically doing this anti-corruption strategy to help them to create to to do all of the steps. It's like the big strategy that consists one thousand and seven hundred, if I'm not mistaken, anti-corruption measures. Just for example, one of them is the head of the national police uh, that should go through the open competition process and uh, the um, Minister for Internal Affairs is responsible for creating such a law. So it's nothing else like a totally anti-corruption measure, obviously, to do the competition for the law enforcement bodies that would obviously will take a big part in investigating of all of these corruption crimes. And what we already know that 90% of the corruption crimes regarding, um, I mean, uh, corruption crimes that regarding not only construction, but just the um, misuse of the power of the public officials and everything. So not the National Anti-Corruption Bureau or not the SAPA investigate that, but the um, General Prosecutor Office and the National uh, uh, Police are the main subjects that are responsible for construction. So yeah, uh, obviously the anti-corruption strategy is the, the most, I mean, it's the most important prevention mechanism, if I can say so. The another one, uh, the second one, um, it sounds uh not so cool but i mean the european partners and obviously the washington they did almost everything instead of us uh, so they uh, did those recommendations just talking about this uh, usa letter that we all all of us read in ukrainska pravda one month ago that we have only 18 months to do a real reforms uh, just um, starting from the accounting chamber and uh, uh, the competition for the NACP, for the headers and NACP, and just ending with a state audit service agency to do the real anti-corruption reform within that public authority that, uh, as we already understand, will be the major uh, authority that uh, is going to do the uh, internal Ukrainian audit of all of those funds and is the only one that is, uh, has the official power to do the audit of all of the local budgets, what also is very important regarding the reconstruction. So what we should do, we sh as a civil society, we should do the shadow reports regarding how the Ukrainian government uh, faces and, uh, uh, um, I mean, really do the homework of all of those recommendations from the EU that we just had one week ago and uh, the Washington uh, 18, we call that 18 months recommendations to do all of this anti-corruption reforms. And we all understand it's like the last bell for Ukrainian government to face all of this anti-corruption measures and finally to do them. And the last but not the least, I totally believe in strengthening the civil society and strengthening the local watchdogs and local investigators and local monitors and local journalists, local investigator journalists. That's why we are holding a big anti-corruption school. And me and Victor are the trainers in that school. So our IL Institute for Legislative Ideas, our NGO is the main or organi organizers of that school. And we're going to do that at permanent base to uh, do the trainings on procurement, on uh, um, 
pro-Zoro system, on new control system, on anti-corruption expertise, on communication with international partners, uh, just how they should start to do their own investigations uh, regarding the reconstruction process.